Thanks for joining us for this message from Awakened Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. It's been about a year since I've been at Awaken uh, on a weekend. I've been a few times in, during the week. The last time I was here, it was back in the old room, so it's so cool to see the auditorium here. But I want to see, I want to get an update. I want to do some demographic research in the room. Let's see who we got today. So first of all, single people, raise your hand. Singles, put them up. Singles, there you go. Keep them up and just look around real quick. Just better here than at the bar. There you go. I do weddings. All right. Uh, next up, married people but no kids. Na- married people, no kids. Raise your hand. Okay, great. Now, next up, kids in the home. Kid, you got kids at home. That's me. A lot of you, right? Okay. Now, next up is empty nesters but not yet grandparents. Empty nesters. Yeah, a few of you. Okay. And then finally, grandparents. Where are you at? Yeah, me, mom, papa in the house. All right. Awesome, awesome. I love that because that tells me this is a multi-generational church, and that's really important, that's really healthy. But that also does something else. Did you feel it? Did you feel it like get just a little uncomfortable? Just a little bit? Yeah, it's like single people are like, yeah, I'm here, what's up? And it's like married people, and you're like, why well, you got to point them out? Why you got to show me where the happy people sit, right? And then it's like married people are like, yeah, it's us. And it's like, okay, kids in the house. But we're trying, pastor, like what? They got, we want to have kids, and then people with kids raise their hand, and then it's like empty nesters, and those of us with kids are like, what's it like? Do you just run naked through the halls? Like, what's it like to sleep through the night without having to say, honey, someone's crying, it's your turn, right? And that's great, I bet it is, yeah. And, but then, then the grandparents raise their hands, and those empty nesters are like, are you kidding me? My daughter's been married 11 minutes, and I still don't have a grandbaby. When am I going to be a grandparent? And what that shows us is that there is just something about wanting what we don't yet have. Wanting a little bit more. If only I was in that place, then I'd be satisfied. But it's not just relational, is it? No, it's not just relational. In fact, okay, if you make $100,000 or more, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, I want you to think back to your first job. Right now, we're in the South, so it was probably Chick-fil-A. It was not for me. I'm from Minnesota originally, and so it was Trumbull's Family Restaurant. And uh, Trumbull's is an old people restaurant in Albert Lee, Minnesota. You know what I mean by old people restaurant? Where you go in, and it's got like the raisin cream pie on the rotating carousel, right? And uh, it was 1997. I was 15 years old. My mom had to drive me to work. My first job... Uh, I had to wear black jeans, which I'm okay with in 2021, 1997, not so cool, especially because I had to uh, have a tucked-in aquamarine polo shirt. I looked like I worked at SeaWorld. But 1997 was a great time to have a first job because on September 1st, 1997, the minimum wage went to five fifteen an hour. So much money. Right? That means if you worked a four-hour shift as a busboy, you would have almost enough for that Smash Mouth CD at Sam Goody. <laughs> 90s kids, where are you at? But what happens? We get that first job. We make the five fifteen an hour, and then we get a buddy who's got another job across town. He's like, dude, I make six. Six dollars. Oh, my goodness. If only I made six. So you work hard, you make six bucks an hour, and that's like, oh, if I had $10 an hour, I think I could get two CDs. It'd be amazing. And you keep working, and then it's like, oh, if only I had a salary. If only I just knew what was coming in each month, then I could budget. And then you get a salary, and it's incredible. And you're like, oh, if only that salary was like 20K. 
If only that salary was 30K. If only I had health insurance, dental insurance, vision insurance, and on and on and on. Once I get there, I'll be satisfied. Anyone feel that in life? Well, I've got good news for you today, church. Science has found an answer. They have. Scientists at uh, Purdue University and uh, the University of Virginia say that they have found an answer to our dilemma of always seeking more. They analyzed the uh, World Gallup poll data, and they found that they say there is an ideal salary for what they call life satisfaction. Anybody want life satisfaction this morning? I do. And they say if you want to be satisfied in life, you need to make $95,000 a year. Now, how does that hit you? Some are like, yes, that sounds, let, let's at least try it, right? Right? If you make less than 95, you're like, that probably, that's probably right. But maybe there's some in the room, you're at 95 or above, and you're like, where'd they get that number? Like, do they, I, I got three kids in braces. I got, I got, you know, I got kids driving with the insurance. Like, that's, that's a crazy number. So what, is those, what do those responses tell us? Are those making more than 95 in the room selfish because they don't think that's enough? Or are those in the room making less than 95 selfish because they wish they made 95? No, what it tells us is that number is garbage. That, that, that's, a, that's a garbage number. In fact, there was another study done to say how ridiculous that number was. There was a rebuttal in the American Economic Review uh, by a bunch more scientists at the University of Michigan, and they said, hey, that number's garbage. You took a bunch of numbers, plugged them into a computer, and say, look, you'll be satisfied when this happens. And that second study says this. They said the relationship between well-being, between life satisfaction, and income is roughly linear. And then they said this. If there is a satiation point, if there is a life satisfaction point, we are yet to reach it. And I love that. Because those are secular scientists at a secular university. And what they're saying is a truth that has been around since the Garden of Eden. That we always want that one thing that we haven't quite hit yet. In Genesis 2, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect paradise. He goes, look, it's all yours. Whatever you can eat from any tree in the garden, just not that one tree. And what's the one tree that they are drawn to? That one tree. And ever since then, sin entered. And there's that same sin nature in us that says, maybe if I get that, earn that, live in that, marry that, then... I'll be satisfied. It's the relentless pursuit of more. So what do we do about it? Well, I don't know about you, Awaken, but I've found that when I've got answers like difficult questions and I need answers, God's word is where I go for answers. Do we feel that today, Awaken? you believe that? So God talks about this very, this very thing in the book of Philippians, Paul is writing to the church at Philippi, and he's thanking them because the church at Philippi has just sent him some support. And as he's thanking them, he goes on to say something. We're going to put these verses on the screen so you can follow along. He says this, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I don't know if we have any note takers in the room today, but if we do, the title of today's message is The Joy of Contentment. 
the joy of contentment. I got one amen, and I saw a lot of disappointed faces. Because someone's like, are you kid contentment? I got up this morning to the early service. I got the kids ready. My spouse was no help. We prayed that we would have enough gas to get to church. I'm here. I'm ready to hear a victorious message. Not only is it not one of our pastors, it's some Yahoo guest teacher, and he wants to talk to me about contentment? Pastor, you're a guest teacher. You're supposed to talk about victory. You're supposed to talk some, something exciting like, like, uh, like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the kind of talk you need to be given. And you're right. There's the next verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the next sentence in the paragraph. That verse that we put on locker room walls, that we put on coffee mugs and motivational posters that we've made all about winning and achieving and getting more, that's actually a verse, the context of which is contentment. Paul says, I can do all things, even this, even fight this sin nature, even even push back this relentless pursuit of more. Why? Because of Christ. That's how important this is, church. And so today I want to talk about contentment. And what I want to do is I want to talk about a few things we need to understand about contentment, then a few steps to contentment, and then I want to leave you with a couple challenges for your week. So let's dive in with some things we need to know about contentment. And the first one is this. Contentment is not what you think it is. Contentment is not what you think it is. When I say the word content, it's not like a great word, right? And if you don't believe me, just the next time you have an anniversary, get your wife a card, husbands, that says, honey, when I'm with you, I'm content. See how that goes over. Because contentment in our English language has come to mean like, it's good enough. You know, if I'm stuck with it, I'll make the most of it. That's how we think of the word content. But that is not the biblical definition of contentment. Uh, the, the, the word Paul uses here in the Greek is the word otarkes. And otarkes means contentment, but it means far more than settling for something. What it means is a perfect condition of life in which no aid or support is needed. Well, that's a little different. That's an anniversary card that might work. Honey, when I'm with you, my life is perfect. I don't need anything else. Hello, that's going to be a good anniversary card. And that's different from how we've defined contentment. So we need a new definition just for our morning. And so here's, the, here's our working definition today of contentment. Here it is. I'll put it on the screen. Contentment is not settling for what you're stuck with. It's unlocking the joy in what you've been given. You hear me? Contentment is not settling for what you're stuck with. It's unlocking the joy in what you've been given. That's a game changer when we realize that contentment is not what we think it is. And the second thing we need to understand about contentment is that contentment is better. Contentment is better. What, what do we mean by that? Well, Something that we've seen in our culture as a result of this relentless pursuit of more uh, is the idea, well, there's even a term for it. We call it hustle culture, right? Rise and grind. We're just going to get out there, and we're going to make it happen, and it's going to be up to us, and we're going to grab everything with two hands, and I just need to keep going, and then maybe I'll be satisfied. We are living marginless lives, Anxiety is at an all-time high. Burnout is at an all-time high. 
But while we are trying to grab everything with two hands, God's word reminds us that contentment is actually better. And he reminds us of this in Ecclesiastes 6.6. He says, better is one handful with tranquility than two handfuls with toil and chasing after the wind. One handful with peace than two handfuls with just that relentless grind and laying in bed at night and thinking of all the things. You know who wrote this? Solomon, the richest man to ever live, looks on and said, look, I've I've done it all. Let me tell you, at the end of the day, peace is better. Tranquility is better. Contentment is better. So we need to know that uh, contentment's not what we think it is. We need to know that it's better. And the third thing we need to understand about contentment today is that contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. Contentment is not the resting state of the human heart, is it? This is something we have to work at. Back to our passage in Philippians 4, I'll reread verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Paul makes it clear this didn't come naturally to him. And if it didn't come naturally to the Apostle Paul, what chance do I have? But the fact is, I do have a hope. And I have a hope that like the Apostle Paul, I can grow, I can learn contentment like he did. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The same reason Paul said he can learn this is the same reason that we can learn this. That's the why. And someone says, well, that's great. Uh, The why is not what I'm struggling with. It's the how. Right? Contentment sounds wonderful. You got all the verses, you convinced me, but I don't know how to walk in this. Well, that's what I want to talk about, a few steps we can take to contentment. So let's talk about three steps to contentment. Here's the first one. We're going to get super practical this morning, church. The first one is this. We need to kill comparison. Step one is we need to kill comparison. What is it about comparison that's just so difficult? Uh, let me tell you a story from my own life. A, a few years ago, um, you know, we mentioned that we have seven kids. Well, we had four kids at the time, but then we finalized an adoption, and then, hey, surprise, we're pregnant. So we went from four kids to six kids in one year, and there, just, there was no room in the house. We were putting kids in closets at night. You know, it was just, it was time to move. And so we moved, and we, we found the dream house. That's what we called it. It was, oh, this is our, did, you, did you ever think we'd live in a place like this? We love this house. God is so good. And I would go to bed at night, lying in that bed, and say, Lord, thank you that we get to live in a place like this. I never expected it. And then a couple months later, a couple from our church invited us over for dinner. They had just finished building a house. And I said, hey, let's, let's come on over. We'll bring the kids. They can play. We'll have dinner. We'll just hang out. It'll be great. So we loaded up the van and we headed that way. And I will never forget driving onto their property for the first time. You drove through some trees and then there was this clearing. And there in the middle of the clearing was this huge white farmhouse like all your Pinterest boards come to life. (laughs) And as I was driving in, I said it. Oh, that's what I wanted. And that night I went to bed 
in the same place where 24 hours earlier I had said, Lord, thank you so much. I never thought I would experience this, this great home. Now I was in the same bed thinking, man, did you see that homeschool room? That thing was awesome. And their, their fireplace was indoor and outdoor. Oh, we don't have one of those. Not to mention their porch. We just have a deck. That was great. What had happened? Well, Teddy Roosevelt famously said, comparison is the thief of joy. And what I had done is I had allowed what I saw in their life to rob the sweet contentment I had in our own home. It wasn't their fault, but I had allowed it to be stolen. And we do this in so many ways. We get our eyes off of what we have and onto what others have, and soon we've allowed the joy and the beautiful things we've been given to be robbed. Not to mention the whole time, that person over there, that family over there, that house over there that we're comparing ourselves to, that's someone else's story. You understand that? Like how many people in the room have read multiple books by the same author? Someone's like, you lost me at multiple books. Okay. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like Tom Clancy has written a bunch of books or, or maybe it's a series like uh, Lord of the Rings or um, um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Just making sure you're awake, y'all. Um, <laughs> But when an author writes multiple books, they don't write the same book over and over and over. In fact, if they wrote the same book over and over and over, we would say that's a bad author. But we have an author, and he's a good author. So the story he's writing in your life is going to look different than the story he's writing in someone else's life. And we can look at someone else's story and say, oh, I wish my story looked more like that, but it's not your story. But in your story right now, there is room for beauty. There is purpose. There is room for joy-filled contentment when we stop looking at someone else's story and start reading the incredible story he's writing in our own lives. So number one, we got to kill comparison. That's the first step to contentment. The second step is this. We need to say the magic word. Say the magic word. I saw a bunch of you raising kids, okay? We tell the kids, hey, say the magic word. Class, what's the magic word? Please, that's right. Well, not in contentment. In contentment, the magic word is thanks. That's right. Because gratitude is the key that unlocks contentment. Thanks is the magic word that turns what you have into everything you need. Let me say that again. Thanks is the magic word that turns what you have into everything you need. Why? What's so magical about gratitude? Because it takes our eyes up off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and puts them back on God. It takes our eyes off of the bread and puts them back on the baker. Gratitude is everything. Later in the book of Philippians, Paul says, Hey, I've been flush, I've been broke. I can have contentment. And then he says this in verse 18, I have everything I need and I have more than enough. And we say, oh, well, this must be one of the times when Paul was doing really well in his ministry. Except Paul wrote the book of Philippians in prison. And in a jail cell, chained to guards, he's saying, I got everything I need. I got more than enough. How can someone say something like that? Because he's seeing through the eyes of gratitude. His eyes aren't on the circumstances, they're on the Savior. And that changes everything. 
Because thanks is the magic word that turns what you have into everything you need. So we got to kill comparison. we got to say the magic word. And finally, our third step to contentment is we need to jump ship. Jump ship. Now, I don't mean give up. I don't mean man overboard jump ship. I'm talking about jumping from one ship to another ship. Because a lot of us are operating in one kind of ship right now. We're talking about ownership. That's where we're living our lives. And and there's this really great story about this in the Old Testament. Um, You know that in the Old Testament, God's people had been taken away from uh, the land God had given them into uh, what's called the Babylonian captivity. They were taken away from the land, and they were basically imprisoned there. And in 538 BC, they were allowed to return with a whole bunch of resources and start to rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, rebuild the city. And so a bunch of them did, and they were so excited, and they were given all these resources. They come back, and they start to build, and then for two years, they start working on the temple, and then after two years, it just stops. And for 14 years, nothing happens. Well, not nothing happens. They kept building, but they said, hey, now is not the time for us to take our resources and use them for God's place. No, 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 no. This, this, it's time to put some paneling up. It's time to put... Uh, to, to, to add an extension to the house, and they start working on all of their stuff and completely ignore what God had sent them to do. They had an ownership mentality, this is mine. And it's into that season of ownership that God sends the prophet Haggai. And Haggai basically asks a question. He says, hey, how's that going for you? Here's what he says. We'll put the verses on the screen. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much. But harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. Why? Because check this out, church. Ownership never satisfies. Ownership is built on that scarcity mindset that if this is mine, I need this for my stuff. And if I just have a little more, that would be better. If I put it in my bank account, in my purse, the problem is there's holes in it. Because the tighter we hold on to it, the more it flies away. Not to mention, they didn't own the resources. They didn't know that they were given resources to go back and build the temple. And they went back to a land that was given to them by God in the first place. See, so often we can start to think of ourselves as self-made, and that's a mistake. James says that in his book. He says, don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So what do we do? How do we escape that deception of ownership, the dissatisfaction of the scarcity mentality? We jump ship. We jump from ownership to stewardship. We become stewards. We realize if it's not ours, if every good and perfect gift is from above, then we're not owners, we're just stewards. Now, stewards is an old school word, right? That's a a Bible word. We don't use it much anymore, but it basically means someone whose job is to oversee or use resources given to them by someone else. And there are stories throughout the Bible of stewardship. But today, what I want to do, instead of going to a parable about stewardship, which we could do, or a story here or there, I just want to tell you a story about a time when Jesus actually turned his disciples from owners to stewards. 
Now, you don't need to turn there, but you can read it for homework this week. It's in John chapter 6. And you know the story. It's a very familiar story. Uh, Jesus is teaching, and there's a ton of people there. Historians think between fifteen to 20,000 people were watching him teach. And it's getting towards the end of the day. Jesus looks out, and he's like, these people are hungry. They've got a long way to walk. They need to eat. And he turns to his disciples, and he gets a little sneaky. Because he asks his disciples a question about ownership. He turns to Philip and he says, hey, Phil, uh, where can we take our money and buy bread for everybody? And Philip's like, what? Our Buy bread? Do you see how many people are here? That would take 200 denarii. That would take two-thirds of a yearly salary to feed these people just to give them a little sample. We, we got a little bit of money and we need it for us. We don't own enough for this. And then someone says, well, hey, there's some loaves and fishes here. Could that help? Almost jokingly, maybe. And Jesus says, yeah, let's, let's take a look at this. And so he lifts them up before the Lord. He gives thanks. Hello, the magic word. And then he turns his disciples from owners to stewards. He hands them the resources provided by him to go do his will with it. And we know the story. They're like, okay, this won't go far. And they start handing it out, and it just keeps going. And pretty soon, fifteen to 20,000 people are fed till they are stuffed when they walked in stewardship. And then it says, though there were five loaves and two fishes at the beginning, at the end, there were 12 baskets left over. They ended with far more than they started with because they weren't owners. They were stewards. The writer of Proverbs wrote about these two stories years before the second one happened. In Proverbs uh, chapter 11, he says, There's one who scatters, yet increases more. But there's one who withholds more than is right, and it leads to poverty. There's one who operates in stewardship and says, All right, they're his loaves and fishes. Let's see what happens. Oh my goodness, we have 12 baskets. And there's one who says, no, nah, I need this. I'm putting it in the purse. And it goes right through the holes. Because there's purpose found. There's blessing and deep life satisfaction found when we realize that every good and perfect gift comes from above and we become stewards, not owners. Now, this is one of those things. These are one of those teachings that it's like, okay, I, I can be challenged by this, but, but what do I do? Like, where does the rubber meets the road on something like this? So I want to give you three challenges for your week. This is great on a Sunday morning. What about a Wednesday afternoon? So, so here's the three challenges I want to level at you, okay? And I'm going to check with Pastor Nate, see how things are going later. You'll be hearing from me. No, here's three. I'm going to give you three challenges, one for each of those steps to contentment, where you can actually just Start walking in this this week. The, the first step to contentment was kill comparison, right? So here's my challenge to you this week. Avoid comparison zones for one week. That's my challenge. Avoid comparison zones. What's a comparison zone? It's going to look different for each of us. For some of y'all, it means no more HGTV this week. For some of y'all, it means stop seeing what Chip and Joanna are doing to that house and start looking at your house right? And with all that free time, you can put up some shiplap. It'll be great. <laughs> Maybe it means uninstalling some apps for a little bit. Coming off of Pinterest, coming off of Instagram. Maybe stop comparing someone else's edited square to your unedited life. 
remembering that if they had moved the camera six inches to the left, it would have told a different story. But who cares? Because that ain't your story. So for one week, find out what it is in your life and avoid comparison zones. See what happens. The second step to uh, contentment was to say the magic word. Here's my challenge to you this, uh, this week. Pick one day this week and only pray thanks. Only pray thanks all day long. You're stuck in traffic. You're mad. Lord, thank you I got a car. Thank you I got somewhere to go. The kids are being the kids. All right. Lord, thank you that I have a mission field right here in my home. Thank you, Lord, for these children I prayed for. Thank you, Lord, for this home we're in. Thank you, Lord, that there's food on the table tonight. One day, only pray thanks and see what happens when we start walking in gratitude. Challenge number three for your week. Step three was jump ship. Here's challenge. This week, take a step in stewardship. Take a step in jumping ship. And someone says, oh, I get it. I get it. Yeah, Pastor Nate brought Brian in as a ringer. He's here to tell us to give more. They just told us about the bathrooms. Now they want us to. That's why he's here. Now, this, y'all, this ain't a giving message. But maybe for some, that is the step of stewardship God's asking you to take. For some, it's stop acting like the owner saying, this is mine, I'm self-made, I work, and say, no, 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 that's, that's deceitful. The truth is, anything I've got is from him, and so I'm going to trust him with my first and the best, and then see what he does with the rest, because I'd rather have 12 baskets than five and two. So maybe that's you this week, it's time to take a step. For someone else, maybe, it's, maybe you're already operating in that, and it's just something practical. Ladies, maybe it's you come to encounter night tomorrow night and you meet someone and you hear they're going through a tough season and you're like, all right, there's going to be Chick-fil-A at your door tomorrow. We're doing this, right? Uh, there's, there's the family in your awakened group or, or, or your small group and, and, and someone's sick. So you're going to drop a meal off at the front porch. There's, there's the single mom down the street. And you're going to go mow the lawn, but you're going to remember that your time, your resources are not yours. They are just simply tools in the hands of your Savior. And they can do far more when we steward them than when we try to own them. So I don't know what that step is for you, church, but I challenge you, take a step in stewardship this week because this is life-changing. That's why Paul says, I can do all things, even this, through Christ who strengthens me. I I can even unlock the joy in what I've been given instead of relentlessly pursuing what someone else has. I I can take one handful with tranquility. I can lay my head on the pillow at night with peace instead of grinding it out, hoping that maybe, just maybe, that second handful will be enough for me. God says there's a better way. Here's the last thing I want to leave you with today, church. This idea of contentment is only possible to us because of Jesus. And the fact is, if you're feeling guilty that you always want more, I don't want you to feel too guilty about it because the fact is the Bible says that God has put eternity in our hearts. You were built to want more than what you've got. Now, the enemy wants to twist it. The enemy wants to say, you need more here. But God says, no, 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 you need more in eternity That's why I put it in your heart. 
And you can hear about steps to contentment. You can hear about taking these steps, but I'm going to tell you right now, without Jesus, none of it's going to work. Because Jesus is the one who comes along and says, hey, you, you want contentment? You want to understand joy? Right? You want to understand peace? Some, someone's holding on to that like, oh, one handful of tranquility. I would love some peace. But you're in the book of Ephesians right now. What's the first line? Grace to you and peace. What came first, grace or peace? Grace. Grace always precedes peace. There's never peace without grace. And he extends that grace to us. And he says, look, I, I want you to live in the joy of contentment. And I want to be with you for eternity. And that's why he sent his son to die for you. In the meantime, before he comes again or before we go home, we can walk in joy and in contentment. But that's the first step. Is to say, Jesus, I need your grace. I need a Savior, and I believe you're the one. I pray that today, if you haven't been at that place yet, you will not leave this room without coming up and talking to someone and saying, hey, I need step one. I'm chasing after everything, but I need Jesus because he's made a way for joy. Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.